Welcome back to Is That a Fact? Brought to you by the nonprofit News Literacy Project. I'm your host, Dara Warland. In politics, two common use terms are far left and far right. And that separation seems to have been growing wider over the past few elections. And I think there's a higher chance of us damaging our relationship. Passions run high. I never envisioned fighting with my family. The tension in the air the day before election day between married couples, friends and family members who support different candidates. is heated and will likely continue. But what if those opinions you're at odds with are members of your inner circle? If you follow the news and Even if you don't follow the news, you've probably heard that the country is deeply divided on political issues. Since 1992, no presidential candidate has received more than 53% of the popular vote. In recent years, Congress has routinely been deadlocked over some of the country's most pressing issues, including whether or not to impeach a sitting president, how much relief to offer during the pandemic, and even whether or not to increase the debt ceiling. So it's easy to see how the narrative of polarization started to set in. But what's going on in the Capitol is not necessarily reflected in the hearts of many Americans. In fact, when you take a step back, it turns out most of us are more moderate than this notion of extremes would suggest. One of the most pervasive false narratives driving our country right now that we wanted to address this season is the one we all have about the so-called other side. We make a lot of assumptions about our political opponents. This is a phenomenon an organization more in common calls the perception gap, the discrepancy between what we think the opposing party believes and what they actually believe. In this episode we set out to explore whether this narrative of polarization is the whole story, or if there just might be a whole lot of nuance that we're missing in our rush to judgment or our quick read of the headlines. To find out, we talked to U.S. Director of More in Common, Dan Vallone, to discuss the organization's fascinating and revealing research into the false beliefs Democrats and Republicans have about one another. Then we talked to former Republican member of Congress, Charlie Dent, about his experience on the Hill as a moderate representing the swing state of Pennsylvania. And finally, we bring the episode home with a conversation with the Dean of Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism, Charles Whitaker, who calls out the news media for playing up this us versus them narrative of political polarization and shares what schools like his are doing to encourage their students to take a new approach. First, we turn to Dan Vallone, the U.S. Director of More in Common. Thanks for joining us today, Dan. Can you start by telling us a little bit about More in Common? What is it? What do you do? Sure. Happy to. So More in Common is a research and civic nonprofit. We study the forces that pull societies apart, and then we work with partners to try and build healthier, more inclusive societies that are resilient to us versus them polarization and division. So we try and do deep studies of public sentiment and attitude to try and understand where there might be uh, unexpected or overlooked areas of commonality and where there are opportunities to build on that to foster communities that bring people together across lines of difference. So founded in 2016, 17, what was it that prompted the founding of More in Common? Sure, it was a number of different factors happening kind of across the globe as well, where there was an increased rise in us versus them sentiment. And in particular, there was a lot of othering or divisive kind of actors trying to target particular groups, oftentimes migrants, as as others. And there was also a lot of internal division, increasingly evident in lots lots of countries across the globe, America, UK, France, and Germany, where it seemed harder and harder for people to actually work together. It seemed increasingly the case that groups viewed each other, not just as political opponents, but as enemies to be defeated. And so when that kind of rhetoric started to appear more frequently in politics and in media, that led uh, a number of our co-founders to come together and say, we need to understand what's happening. We need to bring new research to see 
where there are opportunities to reduce some of the, the toxicity we see in our politics and culture and started that process of launching more in common. And then we launched in the US with a report in 2018 called Hidden Tribes, a study of America's polarized landscape. So I know the Hidden Tribes work fits into the perception gap quiz. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, specifically this perception gap uh, report and quiz, which I think is so fascinating because it gets at the heart of the polarization in our country. Um, can you tell us about the perception gap quiz and then the report findings that came out of that? In 2019, we published a report in the U.S. called Perception Gap. And what we did is we fielded a national survey and we asked Americans about the view, their views on a set of issues. And then we asked them what they thought their political opponents felt about a set of issues. And so what we were able to do is basically ask Democrats what they thought Republicans believed about a set of issues, all of which were kind of high profile. And then we actually asked Republicans, what do you believe on these issues? And we contrasted what Republicans actually believed with what Democrats thought they believed to create this perception gap, which is the measure of the degree to which we overstate the extremity of our political opponents. So what was the top line finding of the perception gap study? The top line finding is that both Democrats and Republicans imagine that almost twice as many people on the other side hold extreme views relative to the number who actually do in reality. So for example, Democrats and Republicans both believe that roughly 55% of their political opponents hold extreme views, but in reality, only about 30% actually do. And by extreme views, we mean kind of views that are further on some sort of relevant scale away from the average or kind of median point. What were some of the most surprising examples of the perception gaps? Sure. So, for example, we asked Democrats, what percentage of Republicans still believe that racism still exists in America? And Democrats estimated the average estimate was approximately half. So about 51 percent of Republicans still believe that racism still exists in America. In fact, 79% of Republicans in our survey said that they believe racism still exists in America. So that is a perception gap of 28 perception points. On the opposite side, when we asked, for example, we asked Republicans, what percentage of Democrats do you believe think that law-abiding citizens should have the right to bear firearms? Republicans estimated that only 44% of Democrats hold that belief in our survey, we found that 68% of Democrats believe that law-abiding citizens should have the right to bear firearms. That's a perception gap of 24 percentage points. Those are just examples that we found interesting in understanding the degree to which we misunderstand our political opposites. We asked um, Republicans, what percentage of Democrats do you believe that we should not abolish ICE? And Republicans estimated that only 40% of Democrats felt that we should not abolish ICE, when in fact our survey found 53% of Democrats feel that we should not abolish ICE. And so perception gap of 13 percentage points. But you can see that there, there are issues that are identity-based, right? So this isn't necessarily about what is the best solution for healthcare costs in America. There's Definitely probably a perception gap there as well, but it's probably much smaller and more manageable because it is not activating the same kind of emotional response that issues that are much more rooted in people's definition of what it means to be American, uh, the way immigration, race, policing, um, patriotism all, all evoke. Well, those issues and the fact that they are such emotional hot button issues can you talk a little bit about uh, how social media can distort hmm. or maybe exaggerate the perception gap? Because I think this is really interesting because I think we have the impression that the conversations that happen on social media are the cultural conversation. This is the defining cultural conversation. Yep. And your study really shows that this is actually not the cultural conversation. It's really a conversation happening between extremists of each party, right? It's a very narrow slice of the population. That they're very unrepresentative of the country in very important ways. And so particularly on the 
perception gap, what we found is those who shared political content online had a perception gap, not quite, but almost twice as large as those who didn't, right? So if you are sharing political content online, on social media, odds are that you have a dramatically more extreme view of your political, those who disagree with you politically, than those who don't share political content online. What we also found, and this was, um, so the New York Times in 2019, and I think it was April, published an article that used our data from Hidden Tribes to show, uh, the headline of the article was something like, Democrats on Twitter are not you know, are not representative Democrats. And what they did is they went in and they just showed how people who share political content on Twitter and who are Democrats were on average, much more likely to be white, much more likely to have a higher education, much more likely to be higher income earning relative to your median um, Democrat. And I think that there was a, a quote that surfaced subsequent in 2020 and 2020 campaign, I forget, who and what source this was, but basically one of Joe, one of the person in Joe Biden's campaign said one of the things they did was like turn off Twitter. Just recognize that the conversation on Twitter is not the conversation that is actually happening among most Americans. And if we think Twitter is representative, like we really might build very distorted strategies for how do we engage certain groups in what we do, um, both as communities, as political groups, etc. So in reading that piece of your study, which I thought was really interesting, the piece about social media, is, is it also occurred to me that what often happens is the news media sees what's surfacing on, yes, the news yeah. media sees what's happening on yeah. social media, what's bubbling to the surface, picks it up, and then amplifies it further, right? Yeah. Which sort of reinforces and amplifies this idea that this is the cultural conversation and it's sort of creating a feedback loop. And then that becomes a conversation on social media. And then, you know, it just continues. Yes, totally. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. <laughs> yeah. it is. I, that's not a question. It's just an <laughs> exasperated statement. So I do want to touch on news, although, you know, I obviously sort of led the question a little bit already here. But one of the other disturbing findings of the study is that those who consume more news media have a wider perception gap because um, quality journalism should really help us all become uh, better decision makers. It shouldn't widen our misperceptions of each other. So what do you think is at play when we see that the perception gap is growing bigger for people who are consuming more news media. So sharing that belief that this, you know, journalism plays a huge role in a healthy democracy and in allowing our communities to solve problems together, to identify problems, to make progress together. So very much appreciate the need for this, for us to address some of these issues. I think the, the causal factors are probably complex because I think on the one hand, what we probably see is that individuals who consume a lot of news are also individuals who are more likely to be politically active, are also individuals who are more likely to be higher educated, higher income earning. So there's a certain degree to which it may not be the case that I read media X, so I believe Y about people who disagree politically versus like, I'm a person who is politically involved. And so as I also consume a lot of news. And so I'm going to report a higher political uh, perception gap and high news consumption. That's one thing happening. I think another thing happening is that what, what you kind of let off with, which is where social media is used by mainstream me media as a source, as a like voice and increasingly as perhaps the dominant voice where what people are tweeting or sharing on Facebook is framed as the contours of a debate or representative of particular groups. And that's very true for political groups, but not exclusively political groups as well. I think the final thing that is also happening is kind of a nationalization of media as well. So this is on, in one level, the kind of slow but painful collapse or degradation or kind of shrinking of local local media, like genuinely, authentically, locally owned, locally sourced, locally local news. Um, and the fact that um, like social media, again, makes everything national seem local, like local issues are repositioned and reframed as a national thing. So 
I think the debates themselves where from which people are deriving their opinions about politics tend to be national, where it is a 50-50 split. And so we are prone to see larger gaps than would exist if we could see the voices and opinions of, say, members of a state legislature, or even more so like members of a local city council or a town, town council, et cetera. So I took the perception gap quiz that is on the website and found that my perception gap is 8%. On average, those uh, who have my same political beliefs have a perception gap of closer to 19%. So what does this say about me? There's two other really important relationships that we also found that are notable, and they're different between folks who identify as Democrats and folks who identify as Republicans. What we found among folks who identified as Democrats is that as their education level increased, the size of their perception gap increased as well. So someone with a postdoc degree and who identified as a Democrat had a significantly larger perception gap relative to a Democrat who had a high school uh, diploma. What thing that we found also is as education level increased, the number of friends that Democrats had who had different political views dropped. Among conservatives, we didn't see that same finding. So as education levels increased, there wasn't necessarily a noticeable change in perception gaps. Social circles seemed you know, pretty consistent across education levels. Media consumption was what we found tracked with perception gaps. So as people consumed more media and news, particularly from, from more conservative leaning outlets, the magnitude of their perception gap increased. So interesting. I want to go back to the education piece, because I think this is so disheartening in a way that, you know, I think we tend to think of education as the solution to a lot of societal ills. So we also had a whole section in the report about education. And we, we, we started that section with basically what you said, like we education is looked to as a solution for a number of things. And also is often talked about as a way for us to overcome polarization might be to educate ourselves more about a number of issues. And this kind of underscores that there's some psychological and sociological dynamics there. I think there's a few things that we we can do, and there's lots of work already underway, your organization being one of them, who are trying to help stimulate new programs and initiatives at various educational institutions. So this is not purely a college campus thing, though that's where most of the attention gets drawn to, but it's it's everything through K-12 and beyond um, as well. So the, the first is one, trying to find ways to bring people together with in ideologically diverse settings, right? So like, let's, let's derive our assumptions about those who disagree with us politically from actual relationships and not pull it from media or news or social media, but like from knowing somebody who holds that particular political viewpoint and having talked to them or heard them express their views. I think the the second is fostering more intellectual curiosity and empathy. I mean, in addition to motivated reasoning, there's other also nudges, psychological nudges that we know can work, whether it's perspective taking or building greater empathy for those who have different viewpoints. So trying to have as a personal, if I have a personal checklist, it might be probing my own assumptions about why I feel Group X holds this viewpoint and building that in as a routine when when I think about politics, for example, just thinking about how we now maybe start getting into changing or affecting and influencing what social media highlights, right? Like typically social media platforms are primed to elevate extreme viewpoints because that's what gets traction, not at all representative of what the median viewpoint might be. Okay. So your study measured this perception gap. Public survey data, such as, you know, the Pew Research Center uh, study that's done annually, you know, shows the country is increasingly polarized and getting more so every year. In your perception gap study, the, I think the finding was we think 55% of the population holds extreme views, right? right. But in actual fact, only 30% do. Yeah. So is the polarization an issue of perception Or is the country actually polarized, which is what the Pew Research Center data shows? That's a great question. I would say the answer is both. (laughs) There is a deep political division in the country. Hard to place the exact percentage, but it is reasonable to think a third of the country hold very strong political identities and they are in opposition to some other segment of the country. And there's very little overlap. And, And that has been worsening over time. I think where the perception 
comes into play is that we think that describes the entire country. We think that basically 100% of Americans are somehow located on one of two ideological poles, and that's very much not the case. Most Americans are closer to an ideological, not a middle, they're inconsistent. Like they hold liberal views on this, conservative views on this. Many folks are not politically engaged at all. Probably 40% of the country really doesn't vote and so hard to fully understand where they fall on an ideological spectrum. But they're definitely not on one of the two ideological poles. So the distance between the poles in America is significant. It is the sharpest polarization of any of the countries that more in common has studied. Mm -hmm. And yet the degree to which that describes the majority of the population is significantly exaggerated in America. So it's not just perception. It is reality. It's just the perception is worse than reality. That's correct. Yes. So it's a false-ish narrative. It's not a false narrative. Yes, that's right. And I think that we, it is a, the perception feeds into the reality, right? So where the vehicles to become engaged politically or to the news information channels increasingly are, are, are polarizing vehicles. So it's harder to find spaces where you might become civically engaged and not be pulled into seeing another group of Americans as extreme in their views. So it is, it is again, the perception is worse than the reality. The perception is, I think, also contributing to a worsening of reality. Right. So if we can become aware that our perception is worse than the reality, we at least stand a fighting chance of entering the conversation in such a way that we can find common ground or we can find that we have more in common to use your organization's name. I think that that certainly is a a hope that we have as an organization is that if we can realize the extent to which we might be misunderstanding reality, at the very least, can we engender some curiosity and drive to get to know people, to derive our assumptions and views from actual relationships and from people who hold those viewpoints. And again, we, you might end up still very divided with those individuals. You might disagree with them very strongly, but hopefully it is a much more realistic assessment of the degree to which you differ. And through conversation, you might also discover that there are things that you share and that you could possibly could work together on improving something in your community or at the appropriate level, even while you disagree on most issues. We did a study in 2020 where we asked about views towards the media and whether they felt as though certain media outlets um, kind of looked down on people like them. And we found, as one might expect, like a pretty sharp political divide. So uh, for example, folks identify as liberal feeling as though um, an outlet like Fox News looks down on them or is judgmental towards them. And folks who have a conservative, conservative orientation feeling that way towards like the New York Times. And so I think part of the challenge at, uh, that we all are wrestling with is how do we how do we build credibility? Because it can be through transparency of an explaining process, like what is the distinction between commentary and op-eds versus hard news? What is the fact-checking process that a, that a media outlet goes through? At the same time, in, in parallel, we need efforts that also build that sense of objective solidarity. So, you know, what we've been talking about is ultimately these false narratives that we have, liberals have or Democrats have about Republicans and that Republicans have about Democrats. What is at risk here? Like, what's the consequence of this? Why does it matter? Yeah, I think there's several consequences that we see happening, but that could, could get worse. So one is a willingness to support or endorse fairly extreme behavior, actions, and conduct by one's own political side. Because as we view the other side as more extreme, we also, in the report, talk about how the larger your perception gap, the more likely you are to make a judgmental kind of characterization of of those who disagree with you politically. So, and we know from other studies that we increasingly see our political opposites as threats. So perception gaps can help fuel a willingness to endorse candidates or political actions that are extreme because it is in response to a perceived threat that may have some real basis, but is also predicated upon a perception gap. So willingness to tolerate extremity on one's own side is a consequence that perception gaps may be contributing to. The second is impairs our ability to engage others. If we believe that the average Democrat or Republican is extreme, 
makes us much less likely to want to try and reach out because we either we feel like we're going to be judged, either we are already judging them, and so what's the point? But it precludes a lot of opportunities to actually try and find ways to solve problems, make progress together, because we will, we're, we never get to see that common ground. We never get to see that there's lots of people, lots of places where we can actually work together to advance that. I think those are two of the more kind of worst case consequences that we see playing out and that perception gaps may be uh, contributing to. There are others, but those are the ones that we are certainly most attentive to. Okay. So in the perception gap report, this paragraph really stood out to me because it's striking and it ends with the word die. Why does this matter? Because when Democrats and Republicans believe their opponents hold extreme views, they become more threatened by each other. They start seeing each other as enemies and start believing they need to win at all costs. They make excuses for their own side cheating and breaking the rules to beat the other side. And as our public debates become more hateful, many in the exhausted majority tune out altogether. This is how countries fall into a cycle of deepening polarization and how democracies die. So that sounds really dire to me, and it sounds like a major warning. Can you talk about the democracy's die part? Yeah, it is dire, and, and we were conscious of kind of the severity of what we were just describing. So I think in some ways, a pluralistic democracy where people have diversity of backgrounds, orientations, depends upon our willingness to acknowledge the validity of the existence, at the very least, of those who have different backgrounds and perspectives than us. And really, in order for democracy to work, to acknowledge that there's validity to viewpoints that differ from our own, that even if we might not agree with our political opposites on any number of issues, that there is value in having a diversity of opinions and perspectives. Like democracies depend upon that. And if we become increasingly divided into two camps that view each other as threats that cannot be tolerated, then we will see increased support for actions which ultimately undo the basic foundations of a democracy. And you know, we see this, we have seen patterns like of this through history where authoritarians rise up in these kinds of conditions because they are willing to champion one side against the other. And so America's not there yet where you know, we have many strong safeguards in the, throughout this country. There is the exhausted majority, which is this kind of undertapped pool of population that are not interested in continuing down pathways of division. There are very real uh, risks that our country faces around that scenario. Next, we turn to former member of Congress, Charlie Dent, for his perspective on life as a moderate on the Hill. Thanks for joining me today, Charlie. How long did you serve in Congress? Uh, Nearly 14 years, seven terms. And so you were first elected in 2004. That's correct. So would you say Congress was less sharply divided then and you were more able to work on bills on a bipartisan basis back then? Well, there were always divisions. You know, there was always partisanship. And and in fact, my my observation when I first arrived in Washington uh, was that I came from the state capitol and I thought that Harrisburg, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, could be a, a painfully pragmatic place. There was no deal that couldn't be cut. You know, fights get kind of personal, but they were pragmatic, uh, almost the times transaction. And Washington, on the other hand, I thought was excruciatingly ideological. And the truth is that the state capital, Harrisburg, looks a lot more like Washington, and Washington has gotten worse. But at that time in, in D.C., and I came in the, during the second term of the Bush administration at, when he won re-election, George W. Bush. And you know, I, I found that you know, we could at least kind of get the basics done, that we could you know, pass appropriations bills. You know, we didn't have these never-ending high stakes, right to the edge of the cliff moments on, you know, debt ceilings, 75-day continuing resolutions to fund the government come September 30th, you know, budget agreements. You know, we didn't have that level of difficulty uh, back then that we did really since, I'd say, probably 2011. Well, when you served, did you think the news media was fair to you? Like, did you think your local media and national News outlets did a good job of ke- keeping your constituents well informed about your work. Yeah, I, I think at times they, they were. They, they, they think they tried to. I, but I, what I often felt was that the media, you know, kind of you know picks its favorite topic and they they stay on it. <laughs> Sometimes they do. It's easy, and 
there's a narrative out there. They keep covering it. And, you know, I guess maybe they should do more on other policies that may not rate as well, I guess. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, maybe that's probably more on the, that's more probably more on the TV side. But what changed, though, is local media. When I first ran for office, you know, for me, local media was everything. I mean, that's where I lived and died. But then as local media became less interested in what we were doing in Washington, you know, they're, they're, they were focusing more on local issues, of course, all the cutbacks, you know, with all the electronic news and you know, who, was, who was buying newspapers and all that. You know, they, were, they were struggling financially. They weren't as strong as they used to be. Then, then I'd learned that the, it took me a while to figure out that, you know, I really had to focus much more on these national news sites and, and news sources. I wasn't going to be able to disseminate messages in local media mm. to the extent I wanted to. And frankly, I could broadcast things better. And truth be told, you know, these, you know, Tip O'Neill, of course, famously said, you know, all politics is local. Well, nobody believes that anymore. In fact, you can make a case that well, much of local politics is now national. <laughs> and so everything seems to become much more nationalized. So to the extent that you as an as elected official, you're getting in some national publications and national, you know, uh, networks like CNN and others, you know, it, it was probably beneficial because you might end up speaking to a lot of constituents anyway. And do you feel that the media further entrenched sort of this polarization between the parties or do you feel like that was already there or do you feel like there's sort of like a um it, one fed the other yeah look i i do think because we have so much media out there and much of it is a significant amount of it is, is fairly partisan that people have found new sources that reaffirm their existing opinions or biases and i suspect they don't change the channel a whole lot or go to a different site, you know, and I think so the media, you know, and again, what are we, what are we calling media here? I mean, it's like, it's like everything, you know, it's like, is it talk radio? Is that, and maybe I'm, that's maybe I'm part of the problem here. I'm conflating things now, but I, I used to sometimes comment to my colleagues, you know, we take them a bill in the house and, and the power, at least on the right. And I suspect it's true on the left now or more true on the left than it had been. Uh, but on the right anyway, you know, these talk radio guys or these, uh, these cable news folks on uh, Fox at night, you know, whether it was O'Reilly or Hannity or Laura Ingram or, you know, uh, Tucker Carlson, you know, these people could generate calls to your office and, you know, contacts. And I think a lot of members, and I used to tell them, don't for a second think that opinion, you know, represents the whole district or the whole country. And that you have to think those guys have a business model and it's, it's market share. And I don't know what percentage of market share they need to make a gazillion dollars. Uh, and so that's their math. How do they build that market share? And, and John Boehner, I think, talked about this quite a bit in his book. And I've talked with John about it at times as well, that, you know, these guys need to stoke anger. You know, nobody's ever going to congratulate when we, we had a Republican House and Democratic President Obama. They're not going to give you a pat on the back and say, didn't those guys do a great job on that piece of legislation that built a bipartisan coalition to do X? Yeah. No, Boring. they're going yeah. to say no, <laughs> capitulation, surrender, right. sellouts. I mean, this would drive Boehner crazy. And, yeah. and so these guys then were basically telling, you know, Republican voters around the country, they'll go call John Boehner, tell him to stop surrendering. I mean, this is what you're dealing with. See, our math in Congress, you know, was 50% plus one. Now in the Senate, sometimes you needed 60% or 60 votes. Um, and, but that was our math. So we had to put together coalitions. So our math as legislators was very different than the math of those folks who are out there who are trying to drive clicks, ratings, eyeballs, market share. I mean, that's where they are. And we it's have to so interesting that comparing. They, they've monetized the, yeah. it. They've monetized, in this case, conservative politics. And on the left, the same thing is happening. I, you know, I understand the right better than I do the left, but the same thing's happening on the left. But it's so interesting what you're saying about the math, because I never saw it that way. But you don't need 50% of the country in order to make a profit as a news media organization. And, and, and what you're saying in terms of your math as a legislator is so different. And this ties into exactly um, our conversation with Dan Vallone. And so, you know, I, I want to bring it back to that because, um, as you know, we spoke to Dan Vallone of More in Common, and they surveyed Americans on 10 different issues. And so he told us that their top line finding was that Democrats and Republicans imagine almost twice as many of their political opponents hold extreme views than they actually do. 
So, for instance, on immigration, Democrats thought most Republicans were opposed to it, like just flat out opposed to it, when in fact Republicans actually do support immigration that's properly supervised, controlled, you know, there's some guardrails around it. And Republicans believe most Democrats were not proud to be Americans and don't support the police, when that's not true at all either. There's, you know, same thing. We need guardrails. So why do you believe those misperceptions developed about the other party? And I wonder if that sort of ties back to what you're saying about the, the, this, this math that they're doing in these partisan outlets. Because it's easy. And I think those two examples you cited, you know, uh, Democrats with police and Republicans on immigration are great examples. I think you're right that most Republicans support lawful, legal immigration, should be managed, should be controlled, shouldn't be an open border, should be a secure border. You know, they, 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 they're, they're not they, they, look, I think most of them recognize their, their parents or, or their, their ancestors came from somewhere else. And that, uh, you know, so there's a certain sympathy, but, you know, they, they like to see it order. They don't, they don't like to see mayhem on the southern border, tens of thousands of people, you know, from Haiti coming through Mexico, living under a bridge in Del Rio. Nobody really likes that image or thinks that's right. It's a humanitarian problem. Don't get me wrong. But it's, it's not what we should be experiencing. But I think you're right. There's a more nuanced position on the Republican side. This is on the Democratic side. I would agree that most Democrats don't want to defund the police. The problem for the Democrats is they have a, they have a group of pretty extreme elements. And I think one of the congressmen recently still said, defund the police. And so what will happen is then the, the conservative media, the talk radio guys, and they'll point to that member and say, see, listen to this Democrat. And they'll amplify that voice, even though I think that voice is probably in the minority. And the Democrats haven't done themselves any favors because where this is all happening, of course, has been in a lot of Democratic controlled cities where there have been defund the police movements. So I don't believe for a second that uh, most Americans dislike the police. And I certainly don't believe they wanted to defund the police. I think most kind of feel like, hey, the police are there for a reason. We call them their problems. We can reform it. But by and large, they're good. Um, and then same thing on the on the immigration side. There are nativists on the Republican side who say very unkind things about, you know, people who don't look like them who are coming into this country. And the left will amplify those voices and say, yeah, look at that guy. Yeah, he's a, you know, he's a bigot. He's a nativist. He's a, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a white supremacist or whatever. And, the, and they'll kind of try to conflate, you know, all the others on the right or Republicans with those very extreme views. And so both sides do it. You know, Republicans are bashing all Democrats as defund the police folks when they all are not. Some are, uh, but and same way on the, on the right where some are nativists and bigoted, but clearly I would say most are not. And when you say, that Democrats and Republicans are doing this. Are you saying Congress, you know, you know members of Congress are doing this? I'm talking more about, you know, the, the partisan, the loud voices out there, whether they be in social media, yeah. cable news, talk radio. These are the people who are really, they're ginning up the anger. Yeah, there's a lot to be angry about defunding the police. Yeah, there's a lot to be angry about what's happening on the border. You know, when you hear a horror story about, you know, somebody in the country unlawfully or illegally and you know, commits, a, you know, commits a serious crime, it's really easy to go out there and, you know, uh, talk about those issues. And you'll, you'll probably drive some pretty good ratings. Uh, but I think what happens is we end up then painting with, you know, I think a lot of people end up painting with too broad of a brush, you know, because of the information they're getting. They're hearing, you know, they're hearing the most extreme and the worst cases and they're not, they're not hearing all that balance and nuance that we just discussed. Yeah. And then what do you think is uh, the consequence of that? Well, I think it leads to the further the, the divisiveness, uh, the tribalism that, we, that we're witnessing in this country. And I would also argue, too, that it seems like politics in this country is not only tribal, but it's situational. What I always like to say about that is, you know, and I see it all the time with Republicans and Democrats in Congress. You know, if my guy does something, it's, it's right and just. If your guy does the same thing a couple of years later, you know, it's a human rights violation. There's always been a certain amount of hypocrisy in politics. I, I get it. And, and dysfunction. In fact, there was sometimes some fun in dysfunction just to watch it. You know, this guy. But, but we've taken the fun out of dysfunction. And the hypocrisy at times has kind of gotten to really high levels. And I think a lot of people can't see it in themselves. I would say this to people, you know, they're 180 degree opposite position of what you had once espoused. And, and, and now they're upset with me because I haven't flip-flopped. Consistency is the hobgoblin of small lines. We all know that. But I try to stay as consistent as I can in my own beliefs and value system. That I'm not going to change them uh, because we have a new president or because of uh, some other external factor. I mean, if I change my view or my position, it's because of, because of new knowledge or some some uh, intervening uh, facts or circumstances that you know, might force me to change. Well, you know, I want to talk about 
the personal toll that this environment in Congress had on you or the, you know, the professional toll. And I'm sure the two are probably kind of blended together at a certain point when you've been in Congress for a while. But what was it like trying to function in that environment? You know, it's funny. My first few terms in office, I got elected in 2004. I had a few seminal moments that nearly affected me as a congressman. The financial crisis of 2008 and voting for the troubled asset relief program that became law. You know, I, I learned then that at some point, we just can't yell and scream and, and point fingers. At some point, you actually have to do something, especially if there's a crisis like that. You know, just doing nothing was not an option. And I realized, too, that there were members both on the right and the left, you know, who just didn't want to act, even though they knew we had to. But, you know, who wanted to go in there and rescue the financial services system? I mean, nobody really liked the idea of trying to shore up all the banks. But I said, but it was much more than the banks. I mean, this is going to cascade and cause problems everywhere. So we just couldn't ignore this problem. Yes, I don't like the optics of going in there and helping restore solvency to banks. But the alternative was unthinkable at that point. You know, runs on banks, massive unemployment, uh, you know, loss of credit for everybody. I mean, I just couldn't, it would have been a, a disastrous. And, and I said, you know, I had a vote for this. Even though there were people who I thought were in much safer political positions, I was in a very competitive district. You know, Obama won my district by 13 points. I won by 18 that year, coincidentally. But I said, at some point, you have to put the fear out of your mind. I've always said this. There are too many people down there who operate out of fear. They're afraid of their constituents or the leaders of the parties are afraid of their own members. They worry about a rear guard action. And the bases are very well represented, not the center right, the center left. It's the bases. And so these leaders will tack hard to the bases. They have to protect their flanks. I came to the realization in 2013 during the, uh, at the time of the government shutdown, just leading up to it, that I had to become more vocal. You know, I didn't want Ted Cruz to define me because uh, I was completely opposed to what he was doing. And then I realized it, and I told our leadership at the time, I said, you know, I, I'm going to be a much more vocal person now because they have to need to hear a different narrative. And so you stepped down from your seat in, was it 2018? 18. 18. So why did you do that? Well, because I had made a decision, oh, let's go back to 2016. Uh, you know, I, I was never on the Trump train, obviously. And uh, I, just, I just knew I was never going to be able to get there. You know, a lot of people kind of in the same place with me. I, but I'm, I meant it, though. I said, I'm not going to be able to get there. I'm not going to pretend that this is okay. And I'm not going to just buy this line. If you're just kind of quiet about it, you ignore it, it kind of be all right. That hasn't worked very well. I just said, you know, I can go do other things and uh, have a nice life. Or I can sit here and you know keep trying to you know put my head through the wall every day. Um, and uh, I probably came to the realization somewhere around May that I probably wouldn't be running again. And I said to my my family and to my my staff to keep it quiet. But I said I'll make an announcement after Labor Day of 2017 that uh, that I won't run again. Do you think that says something about what kind of uh, members of Congress that we're going to be getting representing? the country at this point? Because are we in a situation where we're only going to be getting sort of extremist members of Congress who are representing the most extreme views in Congress now, or other than moderates like yourself? I fear that's the case. Uh, in fact, both on the right and the left. I mean, look what's happening on the Democratic side. Look at all the primaries coming out. These justice Democrats are coming after all sorts of more pragmatic Democrats or center-left Democrats. Uh, and they're facing enormous pressure from their left flank. On the Republican side, just look what's happened to the 10 House impeachment votes. And use Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger as, as great examples. You know, there, there was a time, you know, I thought uh, the job of the Republican leaders was to marginalize the more fringe elements of their members. Now they're trying to marginalize Cheney and Kinzinger, who are thoughtful leaders. And I'm not saying they're moderate. Kinzinger may be a little more moderate than Cheney, but they're a thoughtful, uh, principled people. And there were actually some of the more fringe elements in the House GOP conference trying to force uh, Cheney and Kinzinger out of the conference, out of the Republican conference. Yeah. You know, for my final question, I just want to uh, ask you about this uh, recent Washington Post piece called Why is Washington so dysfunctional, which gets at the heart of what we're talking about. You, you talked about how members of con Congress tack to their bases, which you you also just said here, you use the same expression, tack to their bases, rather than to the center where compromise is possible. 
this tacking to their bases, why do you think they're tacking to their bases? And what does it mean to tack to the base? Because it's safer there. In other words, stay with the herd. I mean, go with the herd. You know, in other words, when I say when they tack to their base, they move closer to their base uh, because that's the political safety. That's where the incentive is for them. They, they represent safe seats by and large, and their, their elections are won or lost in the primaries. And so they, they can't get outflanked. So they need to stay close to the base. You know, there are fewer people who are like me who represented swing district. Again, we're back to math. I used to have to explain to some folks that to win as a Republican in my district, I needed to get you know, 85, 90% of the Republican vote. I needed over half the independents and, um, you know, close to 30% of the Democrats in order to win. That's the math. And I would say to them, you know, how do I win by just being a partisan jerk, just mimicking Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity? So tacking um, to your base would not work. It wouldn't work. In your My district. Is, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, swing voters matter right. to me. Right. And those are the people, you know, I, if politically, I, were, I was always looking at. How do I make sure I can keep that center left to center right voter voting for me? That's where the, the numbers were. And so how do you do that? But for many members, there is no political reward for seeking consensus or compromise. I mean, there's, there's not the reward there. In fact, it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And to be fair, you know, um, all members have primary pressures, regardless of what district you're in. Finally, we speak to Dean of Northwestern University, Medill School of Journalism, Media, Integrated Marketing Communications, Charles Whitaker, for his take on the media's role in stoking this narrative of polarization. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dean Whitaker. Happy to be here. Can you just tell me what your role as Dean of Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism is? I like to say being a dean is like being the CEO of a small company. So I am responsible for everything from hiring to budget management to fundraising. I am the chief curricular officer and much to my chagrin, the face of the school. Before you joined Northwestern, you had roles in different newsrooms. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did there? Uh, Yes. I'm a Northwestern slash Medill alumnus. Right out of Medill, I went to work for the Miami Herald in the Northeast Dade Bureau covering small municipalities and suburban education in Northeast Dade. From there, I went to the Louisville Times, which was the afternoon paper of the Louisville Courier Journal, and I was on something called the Enterprise Features Staff. Um, we're sort of the charge of the Enterprise Features Staff was to cover the changing face of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, but I also was a deputy features editor and the backup critic to a lot of the arts writers there as well. So I actually wound up covering ballet and theater while I was in Louisville as well. Uh, And then I went to Ebony Magazine, which is where I spent the bulk of my career. I was there for almost 11 years and I was um, left as a senior editor, but that just meant I was a roving reporter covering a wide variety of cultural, political, and social issues for Ebony. So it's fair to say that in the course of your career, you've thought a lot about how to prioritize the news, what's important, how to decide whether something is newsworthy. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Certainly anyone who goes to journalism school and anyone who starts as a young reporter is indoctrinated, if you will, in the conventions of the field. And one of those conventions is determining what's a story, right? So there are these seven principles about what makes a story, conflict, controversy, something that's unusual, proximity to the audience, things that tug at the heartstrings of the audience. Those are the general ideas and ideals behind what makes a story. Let's just talk a little bit about the business side of news and how those barriers are constructed between the editorial side and the business side. I would say with the rise of journalism schools, the establishment of new standards and conventions, there was this belief that there should be this wall between editorial and advertising. And I will say that in my 
early days as a reporter, not once did I hear that the publisher was concerned about us ruffling business feathers and losing advertising um, because of a story that we were doing. But that has eroded somewhat over the years. Um, and there are many of us who are very concerned about that erosion today, especially as, as the business model has changed, as advertising has moved away from legacy media and legacy media is struggling for a new model in the effort to retain those advertisers who do remain with legacy media, there are more and more concessions made to, to those advertisers. The nature of the magazine business was, I was much more aware of advertising than I ever was as a newspaper reporter. In magazines, it is not uncommon to create a new column that will be adjacent to an ad because that's some because it's it's advertising friendly uh, or to decide to you you do these product listings and um, it's not uncommon to you know make sure that an advertiser is included in those products. Right. So my next question is. Do you, as the yeah. dean, okay, tell me what you yeah. teach your students. And I'm Which, really glad to hear that. One of the reasons we talk about the business model a lot now is because the old business model is broken, we tell our students, it is going to be incumbent upon you to find the new business model. And the only way you will do that is if you understand what the old business model was and what the current, what models we're currently wrestling with, what's good and bad about the current models um, so that you will be able to go out and help us chart a new course for this industry. So we talk a lot about the business. We really want to talk about polarization in the country and whether or not the country really is as polarized as studies show and we're hearing, um, because as you know, we did this interview with Dan Vallone from More in Common, and their research has shown that uh, the country is maybe not as polarized as the media may give the impression of the country being, or perhaps... Um, and, you know, this is where things get a little murky, because I think we know that the country is polarized and studies show this. However, the perception of just how extreme one's political opponent might be is greater than the reality. I think we have to separate this by issue. Please do. And for one thing, political polarization is kind of an, it's an abstract concept. Um, and it really depends on what you mean. Are we talking about the divide between Democrats and Republicans? Are we talking about really the political parties, which are pretty far apart and, and, and are making the country ungovernable? Ungovernable, right? It's <laughs> a hard reality and it's hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> um, but I think you are right. As you dig into certain issues, the gap narrows and it really depends upon it's sort of the, the way people think about um, politics in general. They say, oh, I hate politics. I hate all politicians, but I love my congressman or I love my so and so, fill in the blank. Right. And so, again, as you get more local and you sometimes uh, move away from the big social issues, the, the gaps narrow. But there's no question uh, anyone who who says there's that we are not polarized is really not paying attention because if you think about the the response to the efforts to mitigate the spread of covid that is a pretty potent example of how polarized the country is and how depending upon the news that you consume and how you identify you process and respond to appeals differently. So there's there's absolute polarization, but there, you certainly can dig deeper and find areas where there's common ground. Just wrestling with those big issues really does paralyze the country. And it keeps us from being able to work on things like climate change. And there are ways in which you, in which, you know, quote unquote liberals can appeal to say the farmers who are having a very difficult time because of climate change and help them to see, and who may identify as conservative slash Republican and help them to see here is your, here's the vested interest that you have in working with us on this issue. There are ways in which we can, you know, we can talk about the opioid crisis or we can talk uh, uh, about um, uh, um, the, the prison industrial complex um, that actually 
if we dig deeper into the issue and meet people where they are, we can find common ground. But there is vested interest at the top and in politics in maintaining that divide um, because it makes it easier to run uh, if you don't have to talk issues, if you really just make this a Hatfields and McCoy feud and it's us against them. And that's what Donald Trump did so brilliantly was really eliminate any discussion about issues and really make this about us versus them. Last year, Ezra Klein published a book called Why We're Polarized and, uh, and an excerpt of that book that covers a broad range of why he believes we're polarized. Mm-hmm. So, you know, including things like our personal identities, the business side of news, which we've been talking about, how conflict draws attention, which we've also been talking about, the news media's role in this, uh, because of the judgments they make about what to cover and what not to cover, like things like Hillary Clinton's emails. And he wrote this, when we're going for retweets or when our main form of audience feedback is coming from highly partisan social media users, it subtly but importantly warps our news judgment. It changes who we cover and what stories we chase. And when we cover politics in a more polarized way, anticipating or absorbing the tastes of a more polarized audience, we create a more polarized political reality. So do you agree that the influence of social media in particular can be a factor for editors in deciding what to cover? Yeah, oh, I certainly think we are chasing clicks and retweets. There's no question that social media has had a profound and in many ways damaging impact on news judgment, right? It now is really what will garner the most eyeballs. And again, as Ezra says, and has been demonstrated, we get eyeballs through outrage, through um, through grievance, through anger, um, through the horse race, you know, who's up and who's down. Um, and again, that's right. That's not nuance. That's not uncertainty. That's not context. That's that's really simple and facile, and it it um, it doesn't help. Now, I, there's something of a chicken and egg um, debate here. Did the news? Did media start this, or did they simply pick up on and sort of un, pick up on what was driving learning? how social media operates and saying, oh, this is the ballpark we're playing in. These are the rules and we are in a fight for survival. And so we've got to play by those rules if we want to survive. I mean, that's probably me providing excuses for media, maybe. But I I don't know that I would say, lay this at media's feet in terms of starting this, but that's the world in which we live. The question is now, how do we change those? How do we re-socialize audiences? How do we get them away from turning to um, those outrageous things that simply get their blood boiling and make them want to click and retweet them onto things that, again, are, are more nuanced, that help them get a better understanding of the world in which they live. But it, it also doesn't help that we don't have... Um, there's no shared trusted media anymore, right? We can't agree upon a set of facts because we are our, our reading habits are so polarized. So that us versus them narrative is really sort of the false narrative. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and the harm that that's causing? It's easy to demonize people who you don't know people whose travails you don't understand. And, you know, we as a media, because we are not good at nuance, context, or uncertainty, have not done a particularly good job at helping people to understand um, the other. And because we are such a separated and segregated um, society by race, by socioeconomic status, by education, it's easy for us, many of us to burrow into our echo chambers and, and come in, not come into contact with people who are not, whose experiences are different than ours. And when you do that, it's very, very easy to demonize people. And then it's easy for the big institutions, whether it's the media or the politics, to paint in those broad brushstrokes and continue the us versus them um, uh, 
conflict that, again, makes the country ungovernable. I tell people the democratization of media by the by digital is on the one hand a wonderful thing. There are no more gatekeepers. Everyone can sort of produce content and, and push it out there. Um, but when you get to curate your own media, you wind up curating your own facts as well. And then again, we, we can't come together to collectively agree upon a set of facts. You know, you can say the sky is blue, I can say the sky is green, and I can just burrow deeper into the set of media that says the sky is green and come to believe that whole with my every fiber and being. And I don't know how we get back to a point, or if we will ever be able to get to a point of shared facts, media that we all trust and agree upon. Because until we can get there, this polarization is going to continue. So you said something that I find kind of troubling, particularly as a former journalist myself, uh, is that the media is not good at nuance, context, and uncertainty. And I I wrote that down because (laughs) those three words are words that we use at the News Literacy Project routinely. And so much of what's going on in our world right now requires nuance and a nuanced understanding. We also live in uncertain times, and I think this uncertainty is also what fuels conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking, and we talk a lot about that as well. And then context, obviously, taking things out of context can drive a lot of misinformation. So if the media is not good at this, yikes, where does that leave us? And can the media be better at it? Well, so I think it's hard to do in daily reporting, and it was one of the things, so I, I... Admit, I, I love, no, I didn't say I love my time in daily. Being in daily reporting was very important for my development as a reporter because it enabled, it taught me to gather information quickly and to synthesize it and to push it out. But I was always unnerved by the fact that I didn't have time for nuance. And the way we construct stories, particularly daily stories, the, the easy narrative is the horse race, who's winning and who's losing. The easy narrative is who's good and who's bad. And the easy narrative is this is the answer, not we don't know the answer. And the answer, is, we're still struggling to find the answer. This is the answer. And that's the way we report, um, right? If there's a, there's a good guy and a bad guy, there's a winner, there's a loser, and here's the answer, here's the fix. Um, we've got to find ways, and, and I, we struggle with this as a journalism school, but we're talking about it all the time, to teach reporters to report and lean into the uncertainty a bit. We actually don't know. People are really struggling to figure this out. Yes, this bad thing happened, and there may be some bad people who are behind that, but maybe it was the unintended consequence of something good that someone was trying to do. And here's how we got here. That's the context, right? Here's how we got to this point. But when you're cranking things out really quickly, it doesn't leave time for that analysis. It doesn't leave time for that kind of plumbing of the issues. Again, we rely on the facile narrative devices that we have used for a century now. We rely on the inverted pyramid. There's a formula. There's a yeah. formula. There's, There's a, a formula. formula. Yeah. And we rely on it and it, it isn't serving us well. Now, on the other hand, you know, part of our job is just to engage people. And not only are we not good at nuanced context and un- uncertainty, people don't like it, right? They, they also want those answers and they want them to be concrete and specific. And, you know, it's maddening to them that there are not really hard and fast answers. And we just continue and, and they will turn away and look for the certainty and the the heroes and the villains in the story. That's the story that they will find most compelling. And someone else will serve it to them. And someone else. We're in a difficult time. It's an exciting time. I love talking about it and thinking about it. It's my, my struggle is we're talking about it, again, talking about echo chambers. We're talking about it amongst ourselves and we're not talking about it publicly, bringing the public into that discussion and helping them to understand what we're wrestling with. So part of my mission, I say as journalism schools, we can't just train the next 
generation of journalists, we've got to turn to training the public as well. We've got to we've got to do more media literacy. We we can't again we can't just be internal inward looking. We've got to be outward looking in a different way than we ever have before. Right, like we want the public to be engaged in this conversation with the news media, demanding better of the news media. Being willing to sit with with better news and and accept and and appreciate better news again, because as you said, someone else is going to serve them what they want. Mm-hmm. How do we shift their attention away from that mm-hmm. to this thing that will make? better citizens and a better society. You know, I don't envy this next generation, but I think that that's something that you can sort of build into kids from a young age. I worry about them, but I think we are at a moment in time for a reset. And it's a moment in some ways, I think that we are starting to have these conversations. Um, It gives us an opportunity to, to really engage and just sort of recalibrate the way our, our education and the, the way we're talking about media and media framing. And again, I, so I'm excited. I'm worried, but I'm also excited about, I think the prospects are great if we all roll our sleeves up and do our part. Thanks for listening. Is That a Fact is a production of the News Literacy Project, a nonpartisan education nonprofit helping educators, students, and the general public become news literate so they can be active consumers of news and information and equal and engaged participants in a democracy. I'm your host, Dara Warland. Our executive producer is Mike Webb. Our editor is Timothy Kramer. And our theme music is by Aaron Bush. To learn more about the News Literacy Project, go to newslit.org and follow us on social media. 